0: The show is called Making Money. Ron Hebert is the financial coach, retired portfolio manager. I'm Gord Whitehead, retired broadcaster. And Ron, we got together and started this show. And one of the keys was teaching financial literacy to people that, you know, maybe don't have a lot of investment knowledge. And I think it's a good opportunity here to mention that just recently the the government of Ontario, the, the government of Doug Ford, they introduced financial literacy into the curriculum in high school. And I think that's so long overdue.
1: You know, I've, over the years, been invited into many high schools and junior high schools to teach uh, financial literacy. And when you ask the question, who knows what a mortgage is? You ask the question is, do you know how to set up a bank account? You ask the question, do you know what a savings account is? Do you know how to write a check? Um, Do you have any idea... Um, TFSAs or RSPs. Or anything. Yeah. And you just get the blank stares. You know, most of them, their one transaction they get every week is going to their folks and holding out their hand and for asking their for money. Yeah. And they stick it in their pocket and then it's gone. So you, you made a point uh, when we were talking off air that I thought was uh, very profound that the probably the most important thing they don't teach is how to handle debt. Yeah,
0: I, I, you know, I, I'm just thinking of our two sons who actually manage their financial houses very wisely because I've been pounding at them, you know, since they were youngsters that you do not want to accrue debt. The one thing you want to have off your books is debt. And, you know, making money is one thing, but not owing money is a huge part of that strategy of going forward.
1: So you've got the ministerial conferences going on right now and elections as we go into the fall. And you wonder that there's so much divisiveness going on politically across Canada, that one of the things that everybody could be doing right now is copying what Ontario's doing and starting financial literacy in schools. Because as, as you mentioned off air, This could be a real problem for these guys because if kids learned and got financial literacy and knew how bad debt was, they'd be informed voters. And that could be very difficult when these guys get to be voting age because they'd be discerning investors and maybe they wouldn't give politicians the long leash to take on the levels of debt that they have.
0: Yeah, because we all know that it doesn't matter what level of government you're talking about, whether it be municipal, provincial, or federal, I mean, debt is a huge problem. And we're all paying for it as taxpayers, and our, our youngsters are going to be paying for it for decades to come. So understanding the concept of debt, I think, is key. So kudos, again, to the Ford government for stepping up and saying, hey, we got to start teaching our young people how money works and how to accrue money and how to keep from running up debt. I I think that's just a terrific move. And that's not a political statement. I think it's just a great general good human statement that you're teaching people how to work with money. Let's talk a little bit about part three here. Investors who are little investors, maybe we're talking about some of these youngsters who start getting tips in school. I think, well, I'm gonna start buying some stocks. What are the advantages that the individual investor has over the
1: financial institutions? Well, number one is they don't have the pressure. Institutional investors are judged and rewarded quarter by quarter on their performance. This can pressure them into doing trades and taking risks that they might not otherwise make. If an individual investor has less than a stellar quarter and they're happy with their investments, they can afford to just hunker down and wait it out. No one is going to fire you if you've had a mediocre quarter or two. And you can think of great companies. I can think of McDonald's, I can think of Nestle's, I can think of, Bell Canada. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Bell Canada. And it hasn't, if you look on a long-term chart, yes, it's gone from the lower left to the upper right, but in between those long periods of time, there's been periods of underperformance, there's been times when they haven't done that well, but they've rewarded you with dividends, and generally, you've been, if you're patient, you've been paid to wait because typically in companies like this, management knows that they're underperforming and they're taking the progressive steps to change the things necessary within the company to meet the competitive dynamic marketplace that they're in to become more profitable again. So if you think that management's got it figured out and it's just gonna take a little while for them to advocate and apply some of the things that they need to do to get back on track, frankly, being patient is one of the best things you can do rather than dumping it and jumping to something else, just wait it out. And you don't have that pressure on you that the big institutions do, because at the end of the quarter, everybody's looking over their portfolio, that isn't doing so good. So at the end of the portfolio often, at the end of the quarter, they're often taking the weeding it out and putting other things in, so it doesn't look like they're holding a bunch of underperforming stocks. And
0: you've talked about this in the past. These institutional
1: managers, they
0: they have to worry about cash flow here, right? Tops and bottoms is a big part of where they're working.
1: One of the problems being an institutional manager, so Gord, let's say you run a hot gold fund, and gold has had a big run here recently, and you've had stellar returns. All of a sudden, you're the talk of the town. You're on all the talk shows. You're on you're, BNN. You're, you're on, on BNN. Everybody's asking you questions. At uh, the 19th hole of the golf course, people are talking about that they own your fund. Typically what happens is you become popular by word of mouth. All of a sudden this money flows in. At the bottom of the market, when you wanted the money, when things were cheap, people were selling your fund and you had to sell these stocks that were cheap to provide the cash for the people that were redeeming. At the top of the market, you've got money gushing in to buy things when they've already had an enormous move and you'd rather be selling. So the institutions, typically, because it's a popularity contest, often get money when they don't want it and have to sell when they would rather be buying. So as an individual investor, you can just patiently wait and when things get cheap, you can buy. And when they get overpriced, you can rebalance your portfolio and you can, uh, you can sell a little bit so you can buy and hold too as an individual
0: investor you can hold for the long term where we're institutional managers they got to keep rolling
1: this stuff over don't they to make to, to make things look good typically an institutional investor has a bunch of people that have pooled their money into the fund and they have to they don't want to look like closet indexers in other words they want to don't want to look like they're holding the 500 stocks of the S&P 500 or the TSX 300, because people go, well, look, you're charging me a percent or three quarters of a percent to manage my money, and I could just go buy an ETF that uh, owns these 500 stocks or 300 stocks, and I could pay a tenth of that. So typically, the impetus on them is to uh, show their value, is by moving things around and buying and selling, and frankly, for most of us, we just don't need to do that.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, dividends. This is something that uh, we've harped on. And if you buy a good quality stock that pays a decent dividend, and you sit and you just let it do its
1: magic of compounding. There is such a narrow subset of companies that have consistently increased their dividends. And less than 3% of all publicly listed companies in the U.S. have increased their dividends every year for the last decade and 0.2% have increased their dividend every year for the last 50 years. This is very rarefied error because only the very best companies ever managed to get there. So 0.2% of 26,000 stocks, basically? Yes. That's not very many. (laughs) No, this is a great subset for most people to be working from and is what they call the dividend achievers. These are companies that regularly increase their dividends because let's work it backwards. Generally, if you increase your dividends, it's because you've consistently increased your profits. And if you've consistently increased your profits, it means you've also increased regularly your sales. Your sales have gone up, your profits have gone up, so your dividends can go up. And typically, if you get that, what happens is that not only is your dividend increasing on a regular basis, but because your earnings are going up, generally the share price follows right along. So by focusing on companies that increase their dividend often you get the share price appreciation coming right along with it
0: and the other thing about when you're focusing on dividends
1: you aren't you aren't pressured to chase capital gains correct you're not pressured to chase capital gains and people don't realize how important dividends are in total return if you took the dow jones industrial average it took 17 and a half years for it to go from 10,000 to 20,000 or to double And so if you work that out on a calculator, that's 4.2% annual return. Now, when you look at the total return, which adds dividends, in other words, the cash that the companies have paid out, and you add that into the calculation, that number goes from 4.2% to 8.3%. So over 50% of the total returns over that 17 and a half year period came from dividends. So, you know, a classic example of this is when you think of Walmart, you think of over the years, you've made a tremendous return on the stock. But if you put $1,000 in Walmart in 1977, till 40 years later, the generation of just dividends off that initial $1,000 would have been $259,000. So we're not talking about the capital appreciation of the shares going up. We're just talking about the cash that's been generated from the company that's been paid to you. That's remarkable. Now,
0: final one here is institutional investors get paid on how well they do relative to their peers
1: and the market. As individual investors, we look at our statement and there's only one thing that's important. Did I make money? Yeah, did I make money or unfortunately, I hope I didn't lose money. You look at these institutional investors, they get paid relative to how well they do against the benchmark, which is the index, or how well they do against each other. So if the markets are down 35%, and the average portfolio manager is down 33 and you're down 45, you might lose your job. If the markets are down 40 and the average investor, the average portfolio manager is down 40, you're down 35, you might get a raise. But from an individual investor's point of view, I still lost money. You know, that's not a good outcome to be down 30 or 40%. So typically because we have different viewpoints we think about buying companies that over time will give us positive rates of return with low risk so most of us don't want to go through those periods of time where we're down 40 50 60 percent even like we've seen over the last couple of decades in markets so we can be more conservative buy quality be patient and wait and because we don't have the pressure that these portfolio managers are under, we can be much, much more uh, patient and frankly take a lot of the volatility out of what we're doing. Well,
0: you and I have known each other for a lot of years, and and I've heard some great stories from you over the years about different people that you've you've worked with, and and you have one story about one lady in particular that's sort of an, an example of the individual investor being successful.
1: Yeah, and she came to the table with no formal education, She came to the table with a very limited mastery of the English language. And still, with just applying common sense and patience and time and buying quality, she amassed enormous portfolio. Now this lady, her and her husband escaped from communist China in the 1950s. They went to Hong Kong, and then they obtained a visa to move to Canada. They came to Alberta, and they set up a small janitor business in which the entire family worked at. And of course, they had four girls. Shortly after they arrived, her husband died and that left her to run the business and look after the four young daughters. Now, this would normally be tough for someone that had a command of the English language, but she only knew a smattering of English. And moving forward 40 years, this woman owned her own home, had put her four girls through university, and had, at the time in the early 80s, an $800,000 stock portfolio, which at the time. That's a lot of money today. a yeah. lot of money. Yeah. So she bought all her. Uh, she brought in her share certificates in a shopping bag with her daughter, who'd acted tra- as translator because the lady was starting to get frail. And so she set it on my desk and promptly started pulling out of this bag. And I think it was an old Woodward shopping bag and piling my desk up with shares of Bell Canada, Enbridge, TransCanada, CP. Canadian Utilities, Transalta, Labatt, Seagrams, Imperial Oil, and virtually every other dividend-paying blue chip in Canada. And she started buying a few shares at a time and dividend reinvesting. And over time, by just focusing on household names, things that she used all the time, buying them and reinvesting the dividends, she developed a monster portfolio. So these are kind of skills that aren't really very
0: fashionable anymore doing something like that, right?
1: Oh, exactly, and it's not like you have to have a PhD in finance to do it. Look at what this lady did with a portfolio that was a stellar portfolio and and frankly, she had no education and she couldn't even speak English. And look what she was able to do by just using common sense. And the last thing I wanna mention is that it's been inevitably the pull has been to trade more and trade more and trade more. And if you go back to the 1940s, the average portfolio turned over once every seven years. By the crash of 1987, people had gotten more active, and that figure dropped by t- 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 two years. Presently, the average investor holding period, and that's the amount of time they actually have the stock in their portfolio, is only five days. That oh, means That's unbelievable. Yeah, that means that you're turning your portfolio over 73 times per year. How can you even keep track of all the things that you're buying and you're selling? And if the stock doesn't produce gains immediately, it's discarded. So it's, it's almost like becoming a gambling addiction where you turn over faster and faster and more and more and more and more and more. And, more, and you're just not letting patience and quality work for you. And that's a game that frankly you just can't compete with the the big institutions if you want to do. So remember that research market timing and trying to identify winners, we've shown conclusively, that's a very, very hard thing to do. These are the big guns in the institutional managers playbook. And what you and me and Joe and Jane Average can bring to the table is patience with a focus on quality and dividend growth. And over time you'll find that this is often the great performance equalizer.
0: So there you go. As you say, you don't have a supercomputer, a Cray supercomputer in your basement that can run all kinds of algorithms and give you information. You can just use common sense and try to pick quality and be patient. Take you a long way. All right, there you go. Ron Hebert is the financial coach. The show is called Making Money. Remember, if you have a question for us, it'll come straight to our inbox. If you go to the cfcw.com website, Making Money is there. We'd be happy to answer them in upcoming episodes. I'm Gord Whitehead. The show's called Making Money. Thanks for joining us. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.